Welcome to the Old Testament Reading Plan Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focusing on Numbers 26 through 31. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I've linked all of these in the show notes. And if questions come up during the course of your reading, please feel free to ask them at bit.ly slash capital A lowercase sk hyphen capital O capital T. Once again, that's bit.ly slash ask hyphen OT. This week's reading was a little different than our normal narrative that we've been going through in the last couple of months. I, I thought it would be good to get a sprinkling of some of the laws and the censuses that we're mostly skipping in our first pass through the Hebrew Bible. We can see just by the detail in these laws how important purity, justice, and righteousness were to the Hebrew people and were through their origins in the wilderness. And because of the repetitive nature of some of these chapters, I'll try and highlight just a few important points through the laws, senses, and so on and so forth. But before we get into it, I do want to name one thing about genealogies and censuses. There was a fella, a pastor and evangelist in America and Great Britain in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. His name is Frederick Brotherton Meyer, sometimes referred to as F.B. Meyer. And he wrote this about one of the genealogies in scripture. He said, tread gently here. This is a private burying ground, the last resting place of the founders of a family to which the world is deeply indebted for priceless service. While it may not be fun to read a bunch of strange names, in other words, each of these names represents a human life, precious in God's sight, instrumental in the work of salvation brought about in Jesus Christ. So as you're reading, tread carefully as you read these lists of names, for the place that you're walking is holy ground. Numbers 26 offers one such census, which mirrors a census that we did not read at the beginning of Numbers, but brings to mind for the readers of the Torah that the initial plan was for the Hebrew people to waltz through the wilderness into the promised land, one year, two years max. But they rebelled, and all the census that was taken at the beginning of Numbers wasted. These people all died in the wilderness, so they had to take a new census. And several names in the census may be familiar to you. The author highlights many of these names uh, while going through the census by commenting on them. For example, verses 9 through 11 mention Dathan, Abiram, and Korah, whom you may remember rebelled against Moses and Aaron in Numbers 16. Now, Dathan and Abiram are, uh, they're discussed because they uh, are sons of Reuben or, or, you know, great-great-grandsons of Reuben or whatnot. Um, and uh, Korah is mentioned along with them because his rebellion, although he was a son of Levi, took place uh, around the same time as the sons of Reuben. And I want you to note too, however, the sons of Korah were not consumed by the earth or by the fire. Uh, the fire consuming uh, uh, some of the people who offered uh, sacrifices to God, the earth consuming some of the political rebels. Uh, and, and this will be important, the, the survival of these sons of Korah, particularly as we read through the Psalms, because some of the Psalms were written by the sons of Korah. Somehow, they beheld the great and terrible power of God, and despite the tragedy they suffered in their father being consumed, they redoubled their efforts to worship and serve God and God alone. I wonder what I would do in the face of such tragedy. 
It must have taken great discipline and intentionality to decide to worship and serve the God who took the life of their father. Also called out in the census are the two older sons of Judah, Ur and Onan. These two were wicked in God's sight, you might remember, and died. The full story uh, can be found in Genesis 38, which also tells the story of uh, how Perez was conceived. Finally, the presence of women in any biblical census or genealogy, like in verse 33, should make readers sit up and take notice. We haven't met the daughters of Zelophehad yet, but they will be an important part of the next chapter. We also get a reminder of how Aaron's first two sons offered strange fire before the Lord, and we we get a count of the Israelites at around 600,000 people, just a, a a few digits above that. This is an enormous number for the time. And there are a number of ways that scholars have tried to explain this number. Because if this is indeed the number of Israel's armed forces, they would easily overwhelm any of the other nations in the area based on the information we have on their populations from archaeology. It's much more likely that this number is either A, exaggerated for a fact, B, symbolic, denoting some idea of completion, or C, somehow mistranslated. It's possible that how the Hebrews used numbers used numbers later in the Old Testament, they may have denoted numbers in a different way earlier in the Old Testament. Uh, whatever the case, uh, the number is probably not literal. So let's, uh, let's get to the daughters of Zelophehad. These daughters contrast really well with the ten cowardly spies who wanted to flee from the inhabitants of Canaan. Instead of running, the daughters of Zelophehad insist on an inheritance of land among the tribes, despite not being male. They're basically saying, look, we have invested in this community and we want for this community to give us some sort of payout because we believe in the mission of this community. And the situation forces the Israelites to make provisions for non-normative situations. Because, of course, if you were female at that time, you could not own land. That's just not how it was done. And and this is true for the church as well, to make provisions for non-normative situations. And, And the church has had to do this for the last 15 months, it seems. Figure out what worship, what community building, what love of neighbor looks like in the midst of COVID-19. One of the activities the church is called to do is not only to serve the 80% of people who fall into normal situations 80% of the time or whatever, but also to serve those who end up on the margins, to serve places, communities, peoples who end up on the margins. For example, I have a neighbor whose child has been processing his gender identity for the last several years and has finally made the decision to come out publicly as transgender. Regardless of uh, a person's views about being transgender, I know some Christians think trans people are contrary to God's design, while other Christians believe trans people are living into who God made them to be. Uh, Whatever a person's views about being transgender, the church needs to realize that the suicide rates among trans and non-binary youth is just sky high. I've put a link in the show notes here because I think it's important to note 60% of trans and non-binary youth engaged in self-harm over the last year, at least when this study was taken. And more than half 
of trans and non-binary youth considered ending their lives. This should make us stand up and take action, much in the same way that Moses took unprecedented action for these daughters of Zelophehad. This is no longer an issue of sin or not sin, of, of what a community is uh, feels permission to do. Instead, it's an issue of life, an issue of righteousness, an issue of justice, because God is a God of life. God does not want for us to, to, to die in our transgressions and sins, but to have life, to have life abundantly. So we need to make exceptions sometimes for how we care for non-normative situations. After delivering justice to the daughters of Zelophehad, Moses turns over the reins of leadership and authority to Joshua before looking on the promised land and dying. This is not the last time we see Moses in the story. Whether this is because the book of Numbers, and Deuteronomy for that matter, plays a little bit fast and loose with the timeline, or whether because Moses wasn't able to say goodbye to the people yet, it's not clear. One rabbinic principle says there is neither early nor late in the Torah, suggesting that the Torah wasn't written with a clear timeline. That's just not its purpose. Within some of the directions for the sacrifices that Israel's were to do in chapters 28 and 29, we can see a love of precision and detail that goes into writing the law. We don't anywhere see an etc. or and so on, or do like you did before. Instead, in these directions, while they're following a clear pattern, everything is given completely and precisely. Every single thing is spelled out. There are no ellipses. And yet, this brings to mind, I think... Uh, the the question that Dave C. asked this week, he, he asked, following up on Jack's question recently, where is all of this livestock coming from that's used for sacrifice? It also seems a bit over the top on the sheer number of sacrifices at all, these ceremonies. Is there a reason for these numbers? Well, and Dave, part of the answer might come from uh, verse 6 of chapter 28 in Numbers. God has this throwaway line in talking to to Moses about uh, offering sacrifices like the one offered on Mount Sinai. There's a, a really important scholar in the Middle Ages named Abraham ibn Ezra, and he noted that this passage could imply that the Israelites had not been offering sacrifices for the 40 years of wandering since Sinai. Perhaps, as Jack suggested last week, they didn't have the animals to do so. Uh, But the other part of your question involves the seemingly excessive nature of these sacrifices, and perhaps, for the Israelites, this excessive nature was comforting. They never needed to worry about whether they were offering enough, and therefore never needed to worry about whether fire would come out from the temple or the earth would open up and swallow them. second half of the podcast today, we'll look at the final two chapters of the reading and tackle a couple more questions. First, there's these laws around vows, particularly vows women take. Whether a woman's vow is binding based on her husband's or father's support. And there's some interesting things in this chapter, but I'm reminded when I run into chapters like these how far removed I am, both culturally and historically, from ancient Israel. The children of Israel had a clear understanding 
that women were regarded as property, whether property of their fathers or property of their husbands, and even their promises and their vows to God were regulated. And there is a lot that we still need to do as a society, but thanks be to God that we've come this far, where we don't need for women to run their vows past their husbands or their fathers. Re-entering the narrative piece of our time uh, in, in chapter 31, the Israelites seek vengeance on the Midianites for attempting to seduce them to intermarriage and to idolatry. And I want you to remember, Jethro and Zipporah, Moses' father-in-law and wife, respectively, are both Midianites. Jethro was someone who Moses was so uh, uh, excited to bring with him that he tried to get Jethro or Riel uh, or uh, Honan, I think, uh, they called a bunch of different things, to come with them and show them the way through the wilderness. Uh, this was a beloved uh, father figure to Moses. So uh, in addition to Zipporah being his wife, so why does Moses lower the boom so violently on the Midianites? Well, perhaps he didn't want to be seen as soft because of his association with them. Or maybe he was so enraged that people he thought were admirable and good, people who should have had his back, maybe he was enraged that they would hurt his people in such a way. Whatever the case, Moses leads his people in a terrible genocide of the Midianites. They kill uh, the kings of Midian along with Balaam, the prophet who we uh, got to know uh, earlier in Numbers, along with every human being except for the virgin women. One word for this is blood curdling. While perhaps the Midianites were corrupt and sinful, it's hard to imagine that justifies the massacre that Moses and the Hebrew people inflict on them. Small comfort though it is, I would note that the slaughter of the male children and the non-virgin women was not God's command, but Moses's. And I wonder, you know, how frequently do we begin thinking all of our enemies are in fact God's enemies? How frequently do we say vengeance is mine when we should say to God, vengeance is thine and thine alone? We often think we're following God's command, but are we loving God and loving our neighbors when we do what we think is following God's command? Would our neighbors say that we're offering them love? There are times, yes, like with Phineas last week, that we need to stand for what is right and stand in opposition to something or someone, but that should not lead to genocide. If you're uncomfortable with this part of scripture, know that you're not alone that there are many folks for whom this part of scripture is uh, hard, if not impossible, to explain. And what we have here is a record of history, not necessarily a record of what it looks like to live a godly life. There were two more questions from this last week's reading. One question from Cheryl L. Uh, was, in the podcast, you said that intermarriage is or was complicated. I've thought of this rather simply as God's direction to not marry outside the faith, and perhaps this is too simplistic, but it certainly can and has caused problems. What else do you see here? And thanks for the question, Cheryl. Uh, I think you're spot on for the instructions that we receive in the New Testament. Many Christians will read 2 Corinthians 6, I believe is where it is, and understand that Paul's command not to be unequally yoked means that we shouldn't marry someone who isn't of our faith. 
Whether that's actually the correct interpretation or not is out of the scope of this podcast, but I can say that the issue in the Hebrew Bible is a little murkier. Ruth, a Moabitess, is celebrated for her marriage to Boaz, even though the Moabites were some of the people that Israel hated as they were coming into the Promised Land. Esther, a Jew, is celebrated for her marriage to the Persian king Ahasuerus. Yet Ezra rails against intermarriage in Ezra chapter 9, and Solomon is suggested to have been led astray by his many wives in 1 Kings 11. So the issue, at least in the Hebrew Bible, is somewhat unclear. King David came from the union of Boaz and Ruth. Boaz himself came from the union of Salmon and Rahab, Rahab being the harlot in Jerusalem, who we'll meet in a few weeks. And I think that we'll touch on this a little more in the coming months as we encounter some of these stories, but even Moses married Zipporah, a Midianite. So uh, that's what I mean by saying it's a little bit unclear, at least in the Hebrew Bible, is that we have anecdotes that suggest intermarriage is good, and we have anecdotes suggesting it's bad. Paulette W. asked, Moses told Joshua to consult Eliezer the priest, who will inquire of the Urim. That's from the NIV and KJV. Uh, Whereas the message has, using the oracle Urim, will prayerfully advise him in the presence of God. And in the Common English Bible, it has, determine for him the decision by lot before the Lord. And my question, Paulette says, is who is Urim? Was there an oracle like the oracle in Greece? And what was the casting of lots? Well, thank you, Paulette, um, for making sure that we touch on this. There's some conversation about the Urim and then uh, the the pair uh, of, of things. Usually with the Urim is another thing called the Thumim. And there's some conversation about this in the Hebrew Bible. If you go to Bible Gateway, a website which has hundreds of different Bible translations available for free, and you look up Urim, you'll get a handful of results. Uh, depending on whether your uh, Bible translation has the Apocrypha, you'll get maybe 10, maybe 8. The Urim and Thummim were stones or lots placed in the ephod or the breastplate of the high priest. And they became something that the priest used in order to consult the Lord. And we aren't in the modern era entirely sure of how they operated then, but by using these stones or these lots in a specific way, the priest could ask a question and get a yes or no answer. Now, I don't want to disparage this means of consultation with God by comparing it to a magic eight ball, since there's an idea that God was truly active in it somehow, but I think that's a helpful comparison to get a feel for what the Urim and Thummim were used for, how they operated. Thanks be to God that we can go to God in prayer now, that we have, you know, all believers are priests, and we can build a relationship with God instead of casting lots. That's all for Numbers 26 through 31. Next week, we'll read Numbers 32 through 36, wrapping up the book of Numbers, along with beginning the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 1. This will begin the preparations for Israel to enter into the promised land at last. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture. Scripture.